I don't think too many patients understand the rights that they have to their data, how they would even ask for it, and what they would do with it. So there's been some progress, but again, I think that's been very, very slow over the last 15 years or more. Janice McCallum is an expert on how the healthcare industry can improve access to information for better decision-making. As a managing director for health content advisors, Janice specializes in developing and assessing business models that leverage the value of information and data. Over her 25 years of consulting, Janice has led engagements with dozens of companies, including Thomson Reuters, DNB, Microsoft Health Solutions Group, and some of the top medical journal publishers like New England Journal of Medicine that have focused on new product opportunity assessment, market sizing and evaluation, and commercialization plans for digital information products and services. She also serves as an independent board member for the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and as a past board member of the Society for Participatory Medicine. Janice has spoken at a variety of conferences on a range of topics from big data to business models for data content and was a HIMSS social media ambassador for several years. And she joins us today on the Look Left at Marketing podcast. Janice, welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here with you, Davida. This is going to be nice and relaxed because we know each other through a couple of ways, one of which is hymns, so the health IT angle, and also tennis, which is the my other favorite passion and yours as well. That's fun when that happens. Yes, indeed. I I, uh, I knew you through your PR work with clients through hymns when I was a health social media ambassador. And you really stood out. I'll, I'll just say that at this point. Uh, you always gave good background information. And, you know, as there's so many people involved with hymns that I would be overwhelmed with requests to meet with people. But your requests always stood out. Well, I'm flattered. So that's the end of the podcast, folks. So we'll be seeing you later. That's all I need. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, it, let's start off because although I know about you, our, some of our listeners may not, but reading your extensive background, you started as a researcher and had a passion for data and the power of information. So you were ahead of your time. Uh, then you took that thread in many services companies uh, in many directions throughout your career, and you work for uh, one of the original online information services companies in an era uh, that meant dialing up to a connection through a modem, which I certainly remember. I am now dating myself, having to share one machine in an office and you know sign up for that dial-up, and then the funny high-pitched sounds that came out of it. Uh, so, yeah, can you just uh, tell us more about how you got started and ended up doing what you're doing now? I actually started off in college as a French major, and uh, yet I really liked mathematics, so I, I chose to take quite a few courses in math and stumbled into economics. It just happened to fit into my schedule. Somehow, you know, the economics turned out to be the perfect place to blend my combination of skills, you know, the analytic and social science and, and humanities training. So that worked out well. But it was also an, at an era, as you were saying, uh, dial-up era. And when I was in college, we dialed up to the uh, data resources computer. Do you remember DRI by any chance? I do. So, um, you know, when I took econometrics, we had to dial up into their computer. So having those early computer skills and being very comfortable in the mainframe era where just doing 
basic analysis required some pretty intensive skills. That opened some doors for me. When I, um, my senior year, I went to Paris, again, sort of the combination of the French and economics here, and landed a, an internship at the OECD. And I'm sure the fact that I could uh, deal with the mag tapes and combining files from different organizations and doing that computer work helped secure that internship for me. Econometrics. I don't know if I'd heard of that term. I liked it. Ah. ah. When I went back to graduate school, I went. I chose an MBA program that was heavy and you know, heavy quantitative program. So I went to the University of Chicago. And again, that was still when, um, I mean, there were PCs at that point, but I was a star in the computer room. I got a kick out of that because there were only 20% women in that program. And I would see these, you know, brilliant young men not knowing what to do. And I'd come to their aid. <laughs> and through that, I also found a part-time job working for one of the professors there. And he was, a, he was my econometrics professor as well. But he was a real superstar with computers and analytics. And as far as I know, he's still leading the head scientist at the Department of or the Bureau of the Census while teaching at Cornell now, too. So he, I learned a lot from him and learned, again, not, not to be afraid of computers. We were taking computers apart and adding hard drives and things and in an era where that required screwdrivers. Wow. You really were a pioneer in so many ways could really take this conversation so many ways, but we, we said, I have, I have one that with information and healthcare information. So you, we've come a long way in getting the right information at the right time to the right people. We've heard that so much to improve decision-making and, but the question is, are we really better off? Uh, before the web, we, we didn't have a problem with too much information or at least information that was readily available to the general public. And now the web and social media and other tech has advanced the cause. But has that brought on more challenges than solutions? I think it has. I think it has escalated. You mentioned that I worked for one of the pioneering um, online services. In fact, I'll mention that a little bit more. The uh, company was called Dialogue Information Services. And it got its commercial start in the 70s. It was part of Lockheed at the time. At that point, there was very little information in digital form. Much of it was rekeyed. It was heavily vetted. So we, we looked for databases that we knew somebody would pay for. So there, it was very limited information and a very limited number of people knew how to access it. Things have changed a lot. I think with Web 2.0, when it, everybody could post a blog pretty well, not everybody, but it was much, much easier to publish on the web it was much easier to access information and find information. But I think it was when the social media platforms came along that it became maybe too easy. <laughs> and uh, folks who share information or retweet something may not think of themselves as a publisher, but if effectively everybody who's on these platforms is a publisher now without even realizing it. And that can lead to some scary results. But I think the business model in social media and digital media added to the problem too. You know, it was a matter of, well, mostly ad supported, wanted to increase, amp up the impressions, the click-throughs as much as possible. So all, all the skills and tricks for doing that were sort of a natural for the uh, purveyors of disinformation. 
not only disinformation and understanding what is right and wrong, but using the information well. And it's so there's a lot of facets to it. So you've been actively writing and talking about a term that I just recently heard about when we first started talking about doing this podcast, and that's infodemiology, which I believe was originally coined by Gunther Eisenbach 20 years ago. And for those uh, who didn't know it, it's because I didn't either. He uh, is a researcher in healthcare, especially health policy, e-health, and consumer health informatics. Um, and he refers to the study of health information and disinformation, and more specifically to identify areas where misinformation is present to help guide people to high quality health information. And I can understand why you're interested in that, because I think that's what you, your foundation and then Finally, the industry caught up to you. Talk about that a little bit. I was using the term infodemiology more than a decade ago, but in a slightly different way, or I was using it with people, actually a group within the Society for Participatory Medicine. It was really, okay, more about using information tools to track spread of disease and that type of thing. So, so sort of the epidemiology. Uh, meaning of it, but uh, the meaning that's come back now and is used presently has more to do with misinformation in in a time of a pandemic. So um, how to, infodemiology involves how to reduce the uh, bad information and help people find trustworthy information. And that's, that's, I think, how Gunther is using it as well. And it came up again recently, a friend of mine, whom I think you know as well, Danny Van Leeuwen, had posted, a, or he did, on his podcast, they were talking about misinformation and what they could do to, to help it. And on the description of his podcast, he wrote something to do with, well, if we don't do it, who will? Well, about two days before that, I had listened in on an online conference by WHO. So I responded, I said, well, who will? Exactly. (laughs) Who's on first? Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And since that time, I I wrote a, I then did a podcast with Danny on that topic and wrote a blog on my own site. And since then, I've just been, you know, everywhere I look, there's something new on uh, misinformation and infodemiology. In fact, last evening, I listened into a webinar by PEN America. And they're doing quite a lot in this field, media training, and quite a lot of misinformation and disinformation. And just one other source that I think is interesting because they're doing something in healthcare now. There's a company called NewsGuard, started by Gordon Krovitz, who used to be the publisher of the Wall Street Journal, and Stephen Brill, who you probably remember from The Bitter Pill. He's a longtime publisher. He founded a company called American Lawyer years ago. And so they they have joined forces in this NewsGuard and then very recently did a healthcare version called HealthGuard. And what they do is very much as I do, they agree that that one way to identify whether something is trustworthy is to look at the source. So they rate sources of information, whether they're you know reliable or trustworthy. And so they're they're doing that in health with healthcare sources now, and they just recently did a deal with Mount Sinai in New York to um, have their clinicians have access to this, so that they make sure they're only sharing trustworthy information. 
Mm-hmm. That was a problem, I think, when the, during the pandemic at the beginning of it. You know, uh, of there are cer- certainly more common sources: CDC, Johns Hopkins, Mayo, and then there were other sources, and it was hard. People were desperate for information, and also desperate for the kind of information they wanted to hear. So there's that too. You can be a little biased. Confirmation bias is one of the things that is usually included in media training. You know, people, if they hear something that's sort of in line with their beliefs, they're going to give more credence to it. And usually that may make sense, but there are exceptions in something like this pandemic that occurs once a century, or hopefully not more than that in the future. You know, that's going to be out of the ordinary. So we may just have to open our minds a little bit more. But it's tricky and it's new, it's unknown. There's a lot of unknown. So information comes out in dribs and drabs. And what seems like reliable information one day may be disproven, you know, or not not so powerfully strong, you know, as originally thought. And that's confusing. So that's interesting too. Um, people want information, and there are some publishers that will not publish something. Don't want to be first; they want to be best. I think the AP says that, for example. But then there's a time when there's a pandemic when people are hungry for information, and it might come out even if it's not a hundred percent researched. So things evolve. And so there could be a like an implied disclaimer. If you want this information, I may get it to you, but it may not be a hundred percent. So, but then, so there's there's that kind of a vicious cycle. Yes, and you have to be very careful. I think when it's unvetted, but some people may need quick access. The scientists may need the access, you know, to the the very latest something that just came across the wire or or was just released, but it's not really in context yet. I did want to turn a little bit to something that we've been hearing more about patient empowerment. Well, not, you know, it's been around for a while, but taking the flip side of patient reported or patient generated healthcare data. Um, I, I know this is different from published data that we were just talking about, but it's in the spirit of using data to make better healthcare decisions and ultimately ensure better outcomes, we hope. So if we're saying that patients are empowered and should decide on what information they want or, or how much of it with information generated uh, by providers, then should they be a part of what is generating that data? Well, yes, I think there's a lot of promise in information that patients can provide either um, through their own observations or through devices and sensors. One of the issues, and um, this is an age-old problem that I've dealt with since the early days of my computer use, is the data needs to be, it has to be normalized. It has to be in a common form uh, and format so that it can be analyzing and make sense. I mean, if something's not in the same units as the next item in your data input, then it's not going to make any sense. So one of my um, hot buttons is that we don't spend enough time or put enough dollars or effort into gathering data preparing data for analysis and that you know that applies just as much in the in the consumer area or the patient generated and i think that has held things back so fitbit would have things in one format and not just format but actually you know they said different units or they're measuring something slightly different so it's really hard to 
integrate data, normalize data that's not in the exact same standard. That's been an issue. Oh my goodness. <laughs> From my early days going to HIMSS conferences over you know, about a dozen years ago, I thought we'd be farther along than we are now in um, being able to analyze and, and get value from electronic health record data. Uh, you just segued into something I was going to ask about EHRs because that's, they say, a source of truth. And many that, um, and our friend John Lynn at Healthcare Scene wrote an op-ed not too long ago, and I think we shared it on, on in his publication, Healthcare IT Today, about Epic's view on patient engagement and my chart. Uh, so with all eyes on Epic always, because, you, right, <laughs> every move is scrutinized at the same time. They say, get away from us. But hey, listen, they keep on making us look at them. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on whether Epic should be responsible for introducing better versions of my chart as an example of this sharing, patient sharing data and versus provider? Well, I think all vendors should be, but Epic has the largest and most visible or invisible, visible, does that make sense? Invisible, but doesn't want to be uh, in the limelight. No, I think they have to. It, and if they're not going to improve my chart, then they need to make it easier for somebody else to do it. And they're not known for making it easier for third parties to work with them. Maybe they've made some progress there. But I haven't seen a lot of progress in EHRs. And I think part of the problem is, I'll put some of the blame on the providers as well, because I don't think they're promoting them very effectively. And, you know, it could be that there's a lack of sort of lack of imagination on seeing what the potential value could be to both providers and patients and researchers if they, um, they were used more effectively. And, you know, the economist to me says, well, you know, where's the incentive? And unless we were in a truly value-based system, I'm not convinced that the incentive is really there. You know, I guess one, one way to, you know, we talk about trying to get the patients to demand, create the demand, but um, I haven't seen a lot of that. I, you know, I don't think too many patients understand the rights that they have to their data how they would even ask for it, and um, what they would do with it. Yes, there's been some progress, but again, I think that's been very, very slow over the last 15 years or more. Who owns the data? That's been an age-old discussion. Is it the payer, provider, or patient? Maybe it can be all three, but who, you know, personally, I want to know my, I want my data, but I also want the advice of providers about what to do with it, like I get you know, we get every year blood tests before a, a physical. All right, what is what is my protein? What are my fats? What am I? What's my cholesterol looking like? Okay, I kind of could see because they do that comparison. But what does that really mean? And what should I be doing? And I'm, I'm I don't have that medical degree. I mean, even as much as you live with yourself and you know yourself, you still need that that advice, that professional advice. Uh, so the providers may say, okay, then I should have the data and so much. They don't want to share the one notes. They don't want to share. And that's where people get proprietary or I don't say angry, but think that they're, they owe, they're owed that. And it's a struggle. And it sh- should it be like you said before, we're not as advanced as we should be. Where, where should we be now? What, what do you, what in your mind, where should we be? It's hard to point to a particular place, but um, as I said, farther along. And I, I 
your comment about, well, how do I interpret this? Uh, you know, it's not just about the data or the rec, you know, what's in a record, but, um, you know, information to explain it. And that really circles back to the beginning of our conversation in terms of getting the right information to the right person to improve decision-making. And, um, you know, we, we prescribe lots of things to patients and, you know, we're getting closer to prescribing devices and that type of thing, but why aren't we prescribing more information? Uh, that, that I really think we need to put more emphasis and more resources into providing information and, and training and how to use it. In fact, there used to be um, a group called the Center for Information Therapy, and uh, the, the very first, I put on a couple of health content conferences back in the, like 2007, 2008, and one of the speakers was um, Josh Seidman, who, who founded that Center for Information Therapy. And I loved the concept. Unfortunately, it uh, sort of died out. It just didn't gain enough um, traction at the time. So you raise a good point. We're offering this, it didn't get traction. By whom? The providers or, the, or, or consumers or both or payers? I don't think it even reached consumers at that point, um, not in a meaningful way. It's, it's sort of similar to some of the patient education publishing companies, but I think the concept was a little stronger in terms of shared decision making. And um, I think both parties can learn a lot from you know, talking about, well, what does this mean? And gee, if I knew that, I could do this. And gee, I didn't tell you this because I didn't know that was going to be of help to you, Mr. Uh, doctor. Mr. Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then there's like First Data Bank, which has a really great approach to um, giving information to patients when they leave a hospital so that they understand their health plan when they leave and they do it in an understandable way. So there's information and then there's information that people can understand in a way that it's written in not legalese, but like, what do you do here? What do you do then? What does this mean? And what should I, in stepwise, that's been a, yeah, right. So sure, I'll give you this information, but will you understand it? And can you, is it actionable? Yeah. Well, we were talking about patient engagement and I did a project recently where I, I gave my perspective on that and sort of came up with a, a different model, patient empowerment and patient empowerment with agency. <laughs> so it's, you know, the, the concept of patient engagement that we mostly see now in practice is, oh, here patient, here's some more information, or here patient, you do this. And it's a very one-way delivery of orders, if you will, uh, whereas patient empowerment would be much more of an interactive process. And for me, patient empowerment with agency means, well, the patient can actually direct some of this and, and control information flows and that type of thing. And that also brings you back to being your own advocate for things. Um, people with maybe that not a very common illness or condition need to, needs to really go and be their own advocate to find uh, solutions because it's just not worth it for a lot of doctors to, and, to do that 1%. Uh, with with what's going on, and that's and so where to find that? Whether it's Facebook, honestly, uh, uh, with crowdsourced uh, with a group of people that have a similar condition, or whether it's just going online and just finding someone with something similar, even United States or otherwise, 
just just to just to dig it out and in some sense where there's so much information in other sense you have to you have to be educated to know what to find and what's what not to find or how to do it so there's empowerment there's engagement there's advocacy too you brought up the concept of sort of patient communities or you led me to think about <laughs> what's going on in in the area of patient communities and that is where you know often somebody especially with a somewhat rare condition can find somebody like them uh you know one of the big patient communities is called patients like me there are others inspires one of the other big ones but there are a couple newer ones that mostly exist on facebook the mighty is one of them uh, my health teams uh, i looked into both of them more recently they're growing quickly again uh peer to peer advice on uh, patient communities and that can be invaluable somebody who's gone through it who can you know, i think e-patient dave is a great example of knowing what to expect uh before you get certain treatments and and his doctor said gee i think you um were able to to handle this uh, rather unpleasant treatment better than most because you knew what to expect so why aren't the doctors telling us or the clinicians telling us this that's a good question that is a good question and whether sometimes the truth hurts they don't want to scare somebody they don't know uh, it's i could i could go you know we could go in a lot of things but i do believe that it's a balance you i you need that professional i put a lot of cred- credibility into a doctor they've done a lot of training they've seen a lot but i also there's something to be said for experience and being having been through it as you mentioned a patient dave is such a such a good example of that and that brings up that you know not all patients are alike i've heard at a conference i was speaking to somebody at lunchtime and she said you know she had recently had breast cancer and when they were trying to determine what care you know course of treatment the doctor asked her opinion and she said no no it's up to you and i said well that that's what you prefer but a lot of people i would want to know what the alternatives are and i'd go and do some research on that and talk to people but not everybody is the same before you leave i always enjoy asking one question that i'd like to ask you as well and if you hadn't gone into what you're doing now with data information what else might you have done ah uh, that's a good question there are certainly um other options i almost went into market research uh if a company hadn't been in the middle of a merger uh that would have been the job i took after business school and instead of uh, online information services uh i'm pleased with where things went and i'm pleased i had the foundation in market research but um another possibility uh would have been probably teaching uh you know i started off as i said as a french major i probably would have been, become a french teacher and uh who knows and then when i went back to um graduate school i was at the time i was working at the urban institute uh a think tank in dc and um i worked with a lot of economists the my boss who was a phd in economics um he said well if you want to call yourself an economist you have to have a phd it's the union card you know and so i, I carefully considered that but i i chose the um 
the shorter two-year program, get an MBA at a, at a, at a school that was heavy in economics. So I, I tried to get the best of both worlds there. So, and even there, I was encouraged to join the PhD program, probably because of my computer skills and my research skills. But I, you know, I just looked at the road ahead and didn't want to spend that much time before I was out there working. Part of it was, you know, needed to earn some money. But uh, I could see that, you know, getting the, the PhD and becoming a professor and, you know, doing research. Sort of, you know, being a consultant is another form of being a lifelong learner. So, yeah, those are two options that I, that I could have followed. I almost went into teaching French myself at a private school. But then I would have had to be the ski coach. And I knew nothing about skiing. So I said, that's that. Sorry. That is too funny. Well, we're definitely going to have to talk about our interest in French. We will. That's the next one. Maybe at Roland Garros next year. Oh, <laughs> all right. Janice, take care of yourself. You too, Davida. Great talking with you. Our thanks to Janice McCallum for joining us on the Look Left at Marketing podcast. For more information on everything she's up to, be sure to check out healthcontentadvisors.com and her Twitter feed at Janice McCallum. We hope you'll subscribe to the Look Left at Marketing series on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, we welcome your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Thanks again for joining us on this edition of the Look Left at Marketing podcast. Till next time, be well.